Welcome to the Inspired Wild Podcast. I'm Trevor Soltzfus and I'm sitting here with my good buddy, Nick Percy. How oh, you doing, buddy? Doing great. How are you, Trev? I'm good. You, you, you look a lot less tired than last night. That is true. I am. Yeah, across the table from <laughs> us here is Garrett Drack, producer of Outback Outdoors. I want you to look around this room, Nick. And I want you to say if you could pick one of these species to hunt. First of all, explain where we're at, what you see, and then I want you to tell me what would your dream hunt be out of all of these animals mounted in here? Hmm. Well, I see mule deer, red stag, elk, a lot of whitetails, caribou. Hmm. Grizzly? Grizzly bear. There's a barber's sheep. Ooh, mountain lion. That's pretty mountain cool. Mountain lion, yeah. Mountain yeah, lion. sheep. Antelope. <sighs> you can only choose one. Come on now. I would like to harvest a huge moose. Moose. Okay. Yeah. We're sitting here at Quentin Smith's house. He is not here. What a great host. He goes, he's getting married, and he just says, hey, guys, go ahead. Take my house over. <laughs> been very nice to stay yeah, here it's very been, close to where we're working so yeah. once you set up what we're doing here um you know nick you started killer food plots 29 years ago 29 stinking years ago that's a long time as a hobby yeah. turned hobby business so uh before you know what before we even set this up what we're doing here you've told me a few things about your history why don't you take us through that 29 year journey because i think it's important if you ever have a chance to meet nick his passion is for what he does is uh infectious i enjoy working with you because we just have a good time yes, we and do. we're good friends but um it's fun to me because i i'm learning but i'm also just feeding off of your passion so take us through that you know, 29 years ago, what made you even, I mean, that whole journey? Well, my buddies actually wanted me to plant food plots for them. And I didn't even know what food plots were. I didn't whitetail hunt. I was a huge fisherman. Literally, and, and I worked. And you grew up in? Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. The second, probably largest population of hunters. Right. And my dad hunted, my grandpas, my uncles. I went to the cabin. I went to the, you know, to the woods. I ate a lot of hot dogs, hung out with my grandma, played cribbage, and yeah. uh, all I had dreamt about was fishing all the time. So when I went to the cottage, we li we have in our in our family very blessed to have a place for since uh, 1887. It's been in our family, and my grandpa turned 87 this year, and so he lives there, and we have the privilege of being able to go and stay at the cottage and enjoy. It's 55 acres. I can whitetail hunt there. Uh, I can fish there. I can share. And a lot of the same cool things that I did as a kid with my daughter, and that's pretty special. That's and, passing that legacy on. Oh yeah, it's great. So she hates it when I uh, when I'm working late on Fridays and we can't get up there in time to have a campfire. But she said, I don't care what time I show up. There's nothing better than waking up at the lake. So yeah, that's even cool. if it's two in the morning. So, that's cool. So the the beginning of uh, the food plotting and habitat development literally started at the request of my buddies because I had a green thumb. They said, hey, will you grow some food plots for us? And I said, uh, I don't know what that is, but sure. Well, I'm always up for a challenge. And I didn't realize what the challenge 
would entail and how much frustration it would bring. And initially, um, it took me about a year and a half and a lot of wasted their money and my time. And I could have been fishing is what I kept telling them. I could have been fishing instead of wasting this time and your money. But um, they knew as soon as I failed that they'd hook me because I really am diligent about staying after something until I figure it out and figure out how to have that success. Um, and what I found is it's not just success in growing something, it was growing the right things for whitetails. And so that's kind of been the, the journey over 29 years is really learning everything I could about whitetails. And so as I started to grow more food plots and deal with you know the, the successes and failures, mother nature, um, she's brutal some years. Uh, this year has been another year, year 19 with a lot of rain and, um, and whatnot. But, you know, starting that, dealing with different soils, understanding soil tests, what am I looking for? What should I be looking for? Sunlight, um, dealing with, you know, rain runoff and drowning your food plot to planting in the wrong soil. So as soon as the sun comes out, it bakes it and it dies. Um, we've been through all of those different scenarios and <clears throat> really there were not a lot of food plot companies at that time. There was only one uh, company that had kind of started to specialize in whitetail uh, food products. And so um, after my marginal success, I'll call it, I sought them out to get some information and learn and uh, talked my way into at 19 years old going down to Paris, Tennessee to go hang out and, and learn some stuff. And when I told them I was a hard worker, I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to learn and to grow and to get better at it. Um, they put me to task and they worked my butt off. And I shot more cottonmouth snakes and cut log jams out of a river for, I think it was close to four trips before they really taught me anything about food plotting and products. and. And uh, I can remember, you know, they were always ready for lunch and I was just getting into my groove. You know me when I, it takes a little bit in the morning to get me rolling, get my iced tea going. But uh, yeah. once I do, I'm just, just like you, we drive to, to the finish line. So um, that and, was and a journey in how itself. Long, how long was that period where you were, where you were working down, you know, making those trips? Well, and I was learning. making those trips over a couple year period. And then I started to get more involved and use the products and, and you know educate others about the product how to use it um and i did that for almost 12 years of with trying. the same company yeah working mm -hmm. with that same company's products mm -hmm. and and the manager uh, that managed um the sales division and he ran the research facility down there so i was pretty diehard um let into me, the let food me, planet. Let, me, let me jump in here because it, being a western hunter I think for me, having never hunted whitetail till I was in my 30s, I didn't realize what a big, you know, what a big business food plots is. Yeah. I is. mean, for these little, we were talking earlier about these little 40 acres, these little 80 acre plots mm -hmm. where there's no huge ag basis. And what you're doing is you're basically creating... A magnet for those for those animals yeah on top of the health of the herd and stuff like that but anyway so this was at the beginning though of there wasn't a lot of companies out there correct so you're 14 12 years 14 years 
about almost 12 years. Okay. I started to migrate in the last year and a half or so into venturing out and trying other things. There were more companies. There were more products out there. Um, I had the luxury of meeting several people in the industry and getting to know people that connected me with other sources and and you know like our seed broker um that's a big part of our business is that we manage our our seed species and grow specific things um for our kfp blends <clears throat> but that that evolution of the development of our own products was there was a gap in there between working with that company and about halfway through that i actually started raising whitetails and high fence because i didn't feel like i was learning everything i could learn as fast as i wanted to learn it and you know so so you actually raised whitetail so you could observe their habits uh what they eat what they're attracted to how their nutrition affects them all these different things the fawning the the whole health of the herd the you know the body weight the carrying capacity the health of the fawns the number of fawns that are born um so we started small and and grew it fairly rapidly um that was another learning curve you know i wasn't doing very well in the first year and a half with those deer and they were getting sick and we were having problems and um one of our new products which you know we'll be launching at ata has to do with pond and water health on properties because that was one of the big things we had a pond that kept making our deer sick they kept having health issues and we couldn't figure it out and eventually had to fence the pond off because no matter what we did we couldn't really get ahead of it and we didn't realize it was the pond initially but um after a while we didn't and we just couldn't keep dumping the chemical into it and it really wasn't that uh, beneficial to them anyway so right. we just fenced it off and fed them fresh water or gave them fresh water but do you remember when you first started before you kind of dive dove into you know the intricacies what was the strategy back then like what, what in the industry what was the strategy of clover fruit clover just clover plant clover the deer will come use plant clover you know that was the big thing um corn put big corn piles out yeah i mean <laughs> honestly uh where i planted food plots to begin with was agricultural area and the problem and what was they normally corn corn they, and beans they corn rotated and beans. corn okay. and beans and this is in michigan uh southern michigan and they the deer would you know come up they'd hide in the corn all day and they'd you know come out into the beans or they'd hide deep in the swamps before the corn was big enough but once it was big enough to hide them it was hard to get them out and that was my buddy's frustrations they're like until they cut the corn until they cut the corn we're not seeing the deer we're not seeing the deer and they had great uh, wetland kind of swampy areas wood hardwoods uh, ridges and the deer just were not frequent frequenting them enough um, and honestly uh, it was not something I understood like I said I would been a hardcore fisherman and I worked between 10 and 14 hours a day and the rest of the time except for about two to three hours of sleep I was in the river right <laughs> and now it's all whitetails I mean now I do the same schedule except I you know have the been blessed with the uh, unfortunate loss of my job in october but now i get to do my business full time and it, man it's just like thank god he pushed me out of the nest so right. not to fast forward here but this um this evolution of going from working with this company raising whitetails getting a really good understanding i learned so much about their personality whitetails are crazy they have 
just like humans, we have all different personalities. We interact differently with different folks at different times, different settings, different scenarios. Uh, we did crossbreeding where we were actually transporting deer to different pens. And, and you know, this is before we were doing the whole um, artificial insemination thing with the deer. We weren't doing that. And we had other breeders in the area. And I can just remember the interaction. Some of the breeders were just characters and big monster whitetails. And these guys are going in there during rut. And they're, they're pet deer. They bottle fed them since they were babies. I'm thinking, man, that guy's G2 could go right through you, you know. He's like, oh, I'm a big fat guy. won't go through me. I'm like, ah, I don't know, man. <laughs> right. He'll take you out. But right. we, I had such a great exposure to so many different um, deer herd watching observing different breeders getting learning i just constantly was a sponge to learn and i asked questions i was like that little five or six year old kid why 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 you know i wanted to understand and um you know when we were raising our deer i, I said we kind of struggled on the front end to really build their carrying capacity and get these deer to grow and i said well all these high fences are doing these great things and growing these huge deer why can't we do that and um you know my nature i'm i'm an engineer by trade that's what i've done for 24 years and um and you know after i got out of college and the the crazy thing is is i never stop wanting to solve problems and or create a solution to something that is an obstacle for uh for myself or somebody i know and and again I, rolling back to the story with my friends as soon as they knew i failed they knew they'd have me hooked right. for life then they got me into shooting archery so then i would compete in the backyard with them and you know they drank beers i didn't i drank iced teas even that far back but you know we had the whole competition in the backyard and then i just fell in love with bow hunting once they got me in a tree stand oh i just it was a huge pressure relief valve for me and with the intensity of my life and my personality to be all in um it was a nice relief and i was hooked into bow hunting from that point forward um would you say that that as you learned going with that company did you see a hole did you and then then you got to to know deer uh wants needs desires uh their as you said their moods their personalities did you see a hole that that you felt could be done better or or could be filled when you left that company is that kind of what you were searching for that missing link part of what i saw is when i first started i felt like you were actually gotta love the cow in the background yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> q, q actually has some calves that are in their backyard and they're and hungry they're, apparently and they're apparently hungry yeah okay uh, and a pot belly pig yeah um so the hole that i saw is there was a shift at some point in the industry where um, coating started to be a big thing on seed coating the seed to absorb more moisture to increase germination and success within the seed so they didn't have it when you started it well, was just just the seed and you'd plant it and then you'd hope for the best right it was more of a raw seed high quality germination rate quality of the seed uh, dictated price point obviously as you um, th as the seed industry changed that became more of a common thing but what I quickly figured out is that a high percentage of what's in the bag was coating and that coating may be helping the seed but unfortunately they're selling seed by the pound so they didn't give you four pounds of clover and then X amount of coating to equal five and a half pounds of total right. package weight they still gave you four pounds and so 
what I was what I was ending up with in the end with the germination um, loss, the weight of the coating in the seed, I literally was ending up with only about 33% of the bag that I was purchasing to install for my customers because my my business started as a habitat business and installing these food plots. Um, I was going to have to ask the customer or take it on the chin for 66% of myself to make sure I had a really nice lush food plot. <clears throat> and I saw that happening in more and more products. And it became kind of an industry standard over time. But I wasn't sitting well with me. And some of my customers um, that I manage for with big properties and, um, you know, those with money are, tend to be some of the most frugal trying to go to them to say, hey, I suddenly need that much more money and I need this much to get you the success I was having wasn't sitting very well. So I started to play around with some different products. I, you know, I tried um, uncoated clovers, uncoated um, brassicas. I started to play with some things. One product that has now become our number one seller, which is Border Patrol, is one of my customers put me the task to said, you know, he was joking, but I asked him what he needed. And he said, well, it'd be great if I could see more daytime movement out of my white tail, you know, ha ha. And of course I saw that as an opportunity that, you know, something to try to figure it out. And so I started playing with all different types of screening products because I think, well, what, what do my deer do in the enclosure? Where do they go all day? They go into the woods and the thick cover. They want to stay in the cool, dense area of the forest. A, they want they're basically sitting in the security of their front room or their living room and they're looking out into the more open kind of park effect area of the woods and any encroaching uh, predator or something they fe fear they have escape routes and i said so why are they not coming out of these fields until the last you know 15 20 maybe 30 minutes of the night and or hanging out for a few minutes in the morning and that's because they don't feel safe in a wide open food plot so I started to play with some different screening products, putting them together. I had some fairly decent success and I had some utter failure where what I didn't understand is plant species and how they develop roots at different levels within the ground. And if you put two like plants together, then they're having a tug of war and, a, you know, it's like you and your little brother having a choke, choke you out uh, WrestleMania in, right, the, exactly. in the front room, you right. know, but they're competing for that same nutrients and that same space in the ground and they get entangled and they end up, um, you know, hurting the, the and success and competing yeah. for space and maybe nutrients. Yep. Right. So through that process, I started to play with some different things and, and ask different questions than I'd ever asked before and to learn more about those those species and plant them in my high fence and to see how the deer reacted and be able to create that sense of security that butted up into the woods where those deer and start funneling them out earlier and earlier getting those those does because really it comes down to when you make does feel safe bucks are the ultimate user they're using every one of those fawns and those those does to basically head out there first step out into the field make sure everything's good then the does you know make their way you've seen this how many times they send indicator their, species yeah <laughs> right right bucks use every every squirrel every blue jay it doesn't matter anything right. going in the woods and if they're not comfortable they're out of there so what i what i quickly learned is it isn't only about creating some tall structure but getting the structure set up in such a way that when a buck comes to a field edge and it, there's 
you know, four sides to a food plot or an open area or even an agricultural field, say beans, for instance, they're still exposed when they walk out in a bean field, creating a security wall that did not allow them to see what was out in the food plot, but it piqued their curiosity enough to go look. And when they would come around that wall, I could dictate where they entered the field. So then I could start setting the food plot in such a way that it would allow the hunter to either on the entry or exit side of this based on wind and direction and accessibility in a property, be able to steer the deer. And that, you know, Border Patrol is a 19 year product for us this year. And it didn't have that name back then. Um, didn't really have a name for quite a few years, but everybody wanted that tall stuff that stuff that made the deer move you know um but you didn't just you sorry garrett Garrett, you didn't just make cover you also blended uh and what did you have this from the start uh a food source too not from the very beginning we didn't have food and so kind of getting back to that idea of what do you plan to not get the competition what i did is i found the right species of plants but we had to do some work with our growers to get uh, two species that would complement so in our kfp foundation it acts like the six by six of the wall so it's strong things like egyptian wheat they blow over in the wind they're very uh very fragile once the winds of the falls begin and you get a good gust they just tip over and they're done they snap right off uh corn doesn't corn is a little bit difficult to have success and and to create height and structure and so what i what i uh, settled in on is a hybrid sudan and a hybrid sorghum that those particular species have about four inches four to six inches difference in their root development so now they're in two different planes in the soil and by doing that i was able to create space that could support the climbing binding that we have and the forage soybean so we have 40 percent of a border patrol mix for instance is food and then the, the sorghum eventually will get a big seed plume seed head on the top and that ends as a, acts as a late season uh, stimulant for the digestive system of the deer and that will they'll eat that in the winter months as that starts to that structure starts to kind of fall and collapse into itself um, they're able to access that food as well so and you know kind of getting back to those beginning years that was a a process of about five or six years to get that to where we really wanted it and even this year i had to tweak it again you know you're constantly tweaking things change um you know mother nature throws different things at you get feedback from customers you know the kfp family i'm constantly looking for feedback from those out there that are using the product what do they need and so we we tweaked uh i tweaked the hybrid species that i i use i tweaked it a little bit more on the the ratio so i could get a better set more standability and sturdy and that's where the foundation acts like that six by six in the kfp structure acts has a wider leaf and it gets a little taller and it fills everything in so at eight foot wide when i first started i used to have to plant it like 14 to 16 inches wide that gobbles up a lot of food plot right now we're down to somewhere between seven to eight foot wide on the outside perimeter and even when it turns brown late in the year you can't see you on one side and the deer in the food plot so it allows the hunter an access tunnel or a a security tunnel which also uh, allows them access to their tree stand which also acts as a communication corridor for whitetails working licking branches and scrapes as they're entering the field and leaving the field in the morning 
which is great because every time you stop a deer, cha-ching, cha-ching, that means they're staying on your property longer. That means the neighbor's not getting a chance during daylight hours to harvest that deer. And so I have really created a huge strategy around Border Patrol on how we plant it and we do the killer maze and how you can steer deer from one end of the field to the other end because I don't allow them to walk in that field and see the whole field. I make them march all the way to the other side to go around the the teed off wall to look in the next area and then guess what there's another teed off wall down a little bit further that makes them walk all the way back and so what does that do it just takes time and they feel calm and relaxed all of a sudden a predator a coyote a wolf a cougar or a bobcat ends up in that food plot or in that killer food plot maze those deer can blow through those inner walls which are usually about five foot wide the teed off walls and blow right through that eight foot wall like it didn't exist like casper the ghost they're gone and those Cats and dogs will not chase where stuff's hitting them in the face for an extended period of time. So they have to run through the whole maze to go back out to the entry exit, and that gives your animals a head start. So a lot of things have happened with Border Patrol. There's always a strategy to everything I'm doing. It's not one-dimensional for sure. So take us from the time that you left and uh, Killer Food Plots was born. You, you left this other company. You said, there's some holes. I'm going to fill these holes. You started playing around with this. My business was called Ground Up Property back then. Ground so Up? Yep, Ground okay. Up Property. Okay. And that's still my base business today. Um, Killer Food Plots is my DBA for my product line. And uh, we developed that actual name in 2010. It's only nine years old. Um, so pretty... Uh, pretty fast moving nine years for us since we did that and we rolled the products that we were working on developing into and under that killer food plots name um you know i can still remember the days of hammering out and developing the logo and the name and um getting the trademarks you know you're sweating it out whether you can do it or not and um was it just you back then yeah it was just me me and my buddies. You wore all the hats. I wore all that. the hats, yeah. You were the janitor. You were the... I was everything. And I still worked a 50-hour-a-week job as an engineer, which yeah. is pretty intense in the automotive industry. So, But I will be honest, that intense environment where you were constantly on the hot seat with the big three, you know, some executive chewing your butt out about something that you had no control over. Um, but... It, it drove me and my tractor time was my pressure relief time. And mm -hmm. so I literally would get out of work at, you know, somewhere between five and seven o'clock at night and I would grab a bite to eat and I'd jump on my, um, in my truck with my trailer and my equipment and off I'd go to do food plots and I would do them all night and I'd get an hour or two hours of sleep and go back to work. And I would feel so much better than going home and fretting and worrying about all the things that didn't happen or didn't you know didn't get done that day at work but it allowed me to be renewed and refreshed going back into work and i think that allowed me to stay in the automotive industry for 24 years like i did in the intensity of that environment so right your passion yeah. was creating uh solving puzzles yep. in in the wildlife in in the whitetail that that is an interesting story so as you started because we met four years ago oh it's been longer than that five years believe it or not i think it was uh 2000 yeah i guess it was probably 2012 something like that i remember we were walking down the ata aisle and one of your guys grabbed us and 
recognized us from the show. He was a big mm-hmm. fan, and we ended up coming over. I met you, and you know, Adam had Adam's forgot more about uh, the outdoors than I'll ever know. Um, and he had been doing some food plots on Swanson mm-hmm. Lake there in Nebraska, and we were branching out, doing more and more whitetail hunting. And I had fallen in love with just the chess match mm-hmm. that is whitetail. And, and I came to you with the problem, hey, here's what I got. <clears throat> I'm at these properties. There, There's no shortage of food. And I know we could probably do a podcast on the lack of nutrients that corn, just corn itself, the empty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what is, empty, well, you told me. Empty calorie, the empty calories and the protein is so low. Yeah, and, and corn. Digestibility is right. not there. It, does, it has some benefits to them, especially. In, but but that's what I was fighting against was these, were these three, four, five hundred acre cornfields. Then on the other side of the road might have been soybeans. And so my problem was. I need them, I need to get them here. Mm-hmm. I need to change their cor- their travel corridors, even if it's little plot to little plot, which let's be honest, we know when the does go, especially if the does go there frequently, when the rut hits, the bucks take that same trail. Exactly. You know what's interesting on that note is that a lot of people don't think about food plots except for fall. And honestly, training your deer starts in the spring. <laughs> training your deer to come through your property where they would normally cruise a, a property line uh, an edge maybe or off into your neighbor's property who may have ag or some other draw or by creating yeah. just that jog to come to your food plot and then come back out start setting the stage for habits if you feed a food plot spring and summer and you don't feed them anything in the fall they have already set up their safety corridor and you're not usually pressuring your property and the deer get used to making that that travel that part of their travel, they will almost continue, almost always continue that going into the fall. And when you set it up with a fall food plot and you're creating that security, you're growing at the same time those farmers are growing. And so when you're setting the stage with the right products in the ground, the right seed blends in the ground, you can compete with those, those uh, soybeans in those cornfields from the standpoint of providing a higher percentage higher digestible digestibility in a food source that they need at a critical time of the year which is coming out of either hard rut in winter depending on what region you're in but winter in the upper midwest is so hard on those deer they need to recover whitetail's diet 80 percent consists of protein whenever available from spring until mid to late fall then they start making that transition into carbohydrates so when you can supply that protein right away in the spring in the form of clovers, chicories, alfalfas, um, soybean or peas or beans or those type of things and grow them faster than what the farmers are growing with their longer term uh, corn and beans, you are going to draw deer to your property. And, and do you think that if you're trying to increase the capacity carrying capacity on your property you're trying to increase the health of the whitetail if you just focus on fall food plots you're missing the boat big time oh yeah because and i think nick you've proven it and as we've had conversations here that you're managing year round for whitetails absolutely and and spring and summer food plots are a big part of that for sure they're a huge part you know and most of our you know as people ask me well what's the mix of food plots and Generally speaking, we, we do 20 to 30% protein, 20 to 30% wow. in perennials. 
Um, the balance of that are annuals, and some of that is in the form of protein. A lot of that, a lot of that is in the form of carbohydrates, which are very critical and cereal grains for the winter, fall and winter months. That is the most critical time of the year for whitetails as far as the stress from pre-rut, rut, and post-rut, followed by the harsh winters. And then those does are pregnant, so they're carrying the next generation of buck and doe fawns. They're carrying that life on, and so you need to help them in their recovery, help them to stabilize, and then come in, coming into spring, make sure that they that their stress has been minimized and or you help them in that recovery cycle as soon as possible. Well, we, you and I have had that discussion about just how can you help deer during lactation and the different things that they need as they, as they fawn, mm -hmm. as they start to feed those fawns, um, you know, and then, and then of course, then what do the fawns need early on when they get weaned and they start, you know, um, so... Well, back when we did high fence, one of the things I realized is that there were not really great nutrients out there for whitetails from a digestibility standpoint. And that was one of the things I realized early on is that, you know, they had us trying to feed them alfalfa bales and, and stuff, uh, you know, different grains and things. And, and honestly, my deer were just not putting on the, the mass in the body. They were not recovering from their stresses. They were, they were honestly sick a lot. Um, it seemed like the vet was there, you know, as much as I was worrying about them and trying to take care of them, that the vet was there a lot. And my, um, I started working with a biologist and starting to learn a little bit more and, and searching that knowledge and talking with different professors. I mean, I have the luxury of living in Michigan. So Michigan state is a huge, uh, resource and talking with some of the professors. And I mean, I just searched every Penn state. I searched out all kinds of information. I, uh, you know, did, um, webinar type things, um, met with lots of different people, made the trips, worked with a lot of high fence breeders that have had success and put together what I felt was the right recipe. Um, one thing that was missing again was that high protein and that digestibility factor. And it's pretty interesting when you start to learn about the digestive system in a whitetail and how it works. Um, what was missing was being able to to deal with gut health so when we raise cows we can put supplements to aid them in their digestion i think that cow, <laughs> cow in the background might need some aid in digestion yeah you might want some core infusion um but we actually ended up developing a product of our own because there was not a product out there that was doing what um was not putting the right pieces of the puzzle together and core infusion is a 33 percent concentrated 33 percent protein pellet but it's more than that. It is. It has gut health in two natural bacterial packs. One that feeds the rumen and feeds the bacteria in the stomach, so they multiply. So there's more of them. So we're creating a digestive army. What I figured out in whitetails is that they have a similar system to a cow in how they multi-chamber stomach, regurgitate the food, break it down. The problem is that they don't spend the time. So they take or spend 50% less time even trying to break down what they put in their mouth and into their stomach than a, than a cow will. And if you think about outside the fence, outside the high fence life, um, they don't have digestive agents. They don't, we really don't invest or those products are not available to feed to them. And although they have a similar system, feeding things that you feed to cows to deer are not trust me are not the best thing to do right. and so we had to kind of custom make 
uh, a product for our whitetails and we really started to build the body and we did it in a healthy way fat is another thing where people feed and a lot of the feed supplements that um that were out there then and are out now they feed too high of fat content for for the summer months the deer can't really process or do much with that so with corn infusion in the summertime um it's 3.25 percent and what we do is we add our our protein source and our fat source through soybeans into the mix at a certain percentage in with the pellets and corn we use we use i like crack corn myself because it's easier for the deer to digest and use and process but um shelled corn can be used as well but mix that so it's custom blended for spring and summer when they need about 6.5 percent fat um, versus the winter months when they need about eight percent fat mm. and if you start getting higher than that it causes other issues and then by adding the um, soybeans and the corn you're targeting about 20 percent protein on a consistent basis now with that said green protein is king in a whitetail's diet so you can supplement through the pellet but they really need the greens and and so we we were heavy on the pellets trying to make up for lost ground and we found out that we weren't feeding enough greens so we had to get back in that green regimen we had to cycle our our fields and supply the clovers the the chicories the alfalfas and bring those protein sources back in and the grains grains were huge in the winter months along with some of those brassicas for energy but um because of carb the brassicas are a lot of carbohydrates a lot of carbohydrates and, and that's why that's their daily energy right and that's why when you know that december january february that's why you look at our 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 trail cameras and the deer are took them a couple of years to figure them out as food source but they just are hammering them because yeah, the they, carnage brassicas yeah, are huge yeah. in their in their world at that time yeah. of the year yeah definitely well um the one thing though that i mentioned and i'm going to mention it again is cereal grains cereal grains supplement where the missing pieces are not there in the late fall and winter what, what the natural mean? browse the natural what? food that helps to stimulate their digestive system to keep it functioning so give me some uh, cereal grains give us give uh, the listeners some winter examples wheat, mm-hmm. uh, winter uh, winter oats are the number one cereal grain for whitetails the easiest to break down the easiest to digest and literally two and a half three and a half four and a half year old deer will go to a, a very healthy green uh winter oats field in our case, our lethal winter oats over a pile of golden kernel. Right. Right. Um, the I call f- them yellow M and M's. Yeah, yellow yeah. M and M's. Yep. And they why is that? Because they know the amount of available carbs. They understand the energy they're going to get from it and how easy it is to to extract that. But it fills their stomach up a lot faster and it's a lot healthier. And when just like you and I, when we eat things or do things that help our body feel good and give us energy and and feel like we're ready to meet the challenges of the day we want to do that again and again and again um in a whitetail situation with their nutrition when you're supplying what they need they will come and consume a little bit of it every day they don't gorge themselves they're not that animal that goes out there and eats and eats and eats until you know they're ready to vomit they they regulate what they eat and they need a balance to keep their system functioning as health and be as healthy as possible mm. so cereal greens um the, the winter oats, winter wheat is the number two cereal grain for whitetails. As far as digestibility, it's texture and it's, you know, it's a sweet product. 
um, and then winter rye. And there are all different types of oats as far as the species and how they perform in high heat conditions, how they perform in cold. It's funny that they're called lethal winter oats. Um, ours are called lethal winter, lethal winter oats. There's a lot of winter oats out there, but they frost kill at the first sign of cold, you know, or first right. frost Adam, or second Adam, frost. Adam has been mentioning how he planted a bunch of those lethal winter oats, and he was blown away by how far into the season after the first freeze those things stayed green. Yeah, they, they literally will, they'll weather, you know, six, seven, eight. I mean, they'll, go, they'll last under the snow. If we get snow, that helps to insulate. They just keep growing. The deer just keep digging for them. I mean, they look like dogs digging holes trying to get to those oats. And so the oats are a big part of it. We do have uh, winter wheat and winter rye in our deep woods blend. Um, we have our new crop duster blend that we just launched at ATA in uh, January. And that has our lethal winter oats, winter rye, um, our tritic, fall triticale in it. That's another, uh, that's a cross for those that don't know what triticale is. It's a cross between a winter wheat and a winter rye with the production of winter rye, but the sweetness and desirability and digestibility of winter, um, winter wheat. So it's, uh, it puts out a lot of tonnage and a lot of available food. And it's very important to continue to stimulate um, that digestive system for those whitetails so that they don't go into that kind of shutdown mode because if they drop below this kind of a visible line, if you will, the equator um, and their system slows down too far, it takes so much longer for them to get their system functioning to be able to eat the available food that is there in the spring so that they can start that recovery cycle. If their body slows down and they don't have what they need going through the long winter, mother nature stretches out winter like she does once in a while, um, they come out pretty rough pretty pretty uh thin and their system is not able to recover quick enough um and that can really stunt the development of your fawns which are your next generation of buck and doe fawns those those does have to be healthy so it can stunt that and it can also affect the antler production of your bucks going into that new season so we're talking a lot about whitetail. How, I'm, a, I'm just assuming that this transfers to mule deer and elk and stuff. Because here we are out west yep. doing a food plot at, what's our elevation, 8,500? Something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think it's important that we point out, okay, this isn't this technology i don't want to use the word technology mm. science the science isn't necessarily just for whitetail correct it is important for mule deer and elk um it is very important part of although they're slightly different in their consumption and what they're going to need when um very important to be able to supplement that and make an impact in, in the health of your of your deer um, and in your elk, your elk situation with your elk. Now, elk are grazers, so they eat a lot of, um, they, they would be more geared towards cereal grains. But what we found five years ago, and Adam, 
you mentioned Adam uh, talking with me extensively. He kept coming back to the booth and trying to find a few minutes to chat with me when, um, at ATA. And That guy will talk for oh. days straight about whitetail management. <laughs> it's <laughs> awesome. I, management. I loved it. Cause well, he, any kind of habitat. Yeah. Well, he's Not a habitat manager out here in the West, and I didn't really know a lot about that. You know, I haven't. Inter- we, we did raise a few elk in our high fence because I just thought they were amazing animals, and I wanted to do that. So that was a bit of a learning curve but i did find that i mean they'll eat uh clovers and chicories they will eat brassicas they love them once they figure out what they are they pound them um you know they they like that energy they do like cereal grains that's you know mimics the t- a lot of the food that they're grazing and eating out here and um they're more of a grassland eater but the the cool thing is they do consume those other things and we saw some benefits of consuming the proteins and the carbohydrates it's definitely a draw once they figure that out and well, so that's why we're here because adam's been doing this successfully up here up here in the mountains in colorado and and um he's had great success and then then the elk we have in kansas and if you're listening to this and you say elk in kansas but we keep getting that same small herd that uh, all we can assume is we know there's elk free range elk in uh, by Fort Riley but that's about 80 miles from us and we what we can ascertain is that in the last 10 years at some juncture there was a high fenced elk area or whatever somebody had some high fence and they got out and these are not those that got out these are second or third generation and we've got it's the weirdest thing to be east of Wichita and see on your food plots a cow, two bulls, a calf, you know, and it, and it seems this herd keeps growing every year. But they will go in and they'll, they will hang out. I mean, literally, I'll have 45 minutes of pictures of elk feeding in that food plot starting in right about now to specifically end of September, October, and then they disappear in November. And I'm assuming they're, I don't know, roaming, but they're not there every day. Mm-hmm. They come. So anyway, I, I say that because I know the elk are attracted as much, if not more than the deer, because those elk will disappear for a week and then they'll come back and they'll be there for three days mm-hmm. and literally right there. And then they'll, you know, it's like they're making a big loop or yep. something. I feel that their travel is their loop is definitely bigger than most whitetail. Right. You know, um, not but that whitetails can't travel. Mule deer are, are more like elk in the fact that, you know, if you're out west here, you might see a mule deer, uh, you know, three, four miles from where you saw them the day before. Um, but in general, they're going to also, especially like in this property, you've got uh, the prime forage. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's summer. It's hot. They're going to just go up above that prime forage and that oak brush or that dark timber, and they're going to bed. And then we've seen them here. Yeah. We le- left last night about 9, 9 o'clock, and in the headlights, there's some beautiful mule deer bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every day. And we saw them again today. Yeah. So uh, those deer are going to... Uh, do we think this, I mean, should we as Western hunters think the same way about those species, white, t- I mean, uh, mule deer and elk, as you're explaining, we think of whitetail. Although maybe a whitetail's uh, where they live and their, uh, home, where, range yeah, their home range is smaller. Mm-hmm. But do, 
the same nutrients, the same way that, that, that we're effectively uh, helping the herd stay healthy. I mean, is there any changes? So, you know, <clears throat> very similar. One thing that we've done is we've developed the seed blends, much like I talked about the Border Patrol with the particular species that don't compete in the soil and the root development so that we can create a better wall and we made room for food. In a similar way in our brassicas, there's different species of turnips, different species of rape that produce different leaf texture, the stem, the, the main stalk of the plant, the actual turnip or the actual um, radish or those brassicas that we have make a huge difference in the desirability and when they eat that particular species of plant. So a lot of people say, well, I plant brassicas because I want to have a late season food plot for muzzleloader, late gun and muzzleloader to capitalize on those deer that we couldn't pin down during bow season. We're trying to get them to call our place home at that time of the year. What we found is that as we're talking about elk and um, specifically elk, because mule deer tend to, um, they tend to browse much more like a whitetail than the elk, but they were very particular to the species of turnips and rape mm. that we were feeding. Um, although when they found one they liked, they ate it. I mean, they're big animals, so they consume right. a lot of food quickly. Um, so, you know, we had to actually put in larger areas and, and to be able to study that. But what's interesting is that there are particular species of rape, for instance, that the leaf is just too thick, what too heavy. It, when you say rape, what, what, what would you classify that? What kind of a plant That's is a that? brassica. Okay. A rape is a brassica. So um, a rape plant, there's, there's different uses for those, like canola, right? A canola is a, is a, a species of rape, and it's that canola produces an oil. Right, and that's for the canola, canola right and okay. so when you feed saskatchewan whitetails that there's field after field after field in canada full of canola that's what they have and that's what they eat but it's not the most digestible for them it's not the most readily available it's not the best source and you know the um there are thinner leaf species that will give them very available or give them the availability to the carbohydrates but allow them to break it down more readily and use it more efficiently and well that's what it comes down to is as i mentioned earlier whitetails do not spend the time so when we developed core infusion to add and be the supplement in their diet to multiply the bacteria so there's more of them munching away on the food to break it down to a usable form and then the other natural bacteria pack actually help to cleanse their system and to purify their system from all the negative bacteria that they get into in watering holes and rummaging through the woods so that when those nutrients that were broken down were passed through the intestine that the capillaries open to get maximum absorption and utiliza utilization and minimize the waste. I, in a lot of my seminars, I talk about I talk about it in this way. For the first year and a half, I was putting $20 bills in my deer, and 18 of it was coming out their backside. And uh, so I needed to switch that around, and corn infusion was definitely part of that. The second part of that was understanding the difference in brassicas, the difference in the species of clovers and chicories, and the waxy leaf, the heavy, leaf, the heavy thick, uh, rubbery cabbage-type leaf is not ideal. I want a romaine lettuce leaf mm. on my brassicas so they can actually break it down. I don't want the waxy film. I want the plant to appear as though it has a sheen to the, to the leaf but not truly have a waxy uh, 
resistant, I guess, layer or coating to the leaf so that the deer cannot break that down. The bacteria can't get in and start to break that down. Mm -hmm. And so that it's hard to, without getting super scientific and, you know, blow people's mind away and lose them. It's extremely important. The particular vegetation you're feeding your whitetail deer, your mule deer and your elk at that time of the year. And what we found is that we were able to strike a balance between all three of them with our killer food plot seed blends that we were able to see that benefit in all of those animals and be able to draw them in. As, as you said, maybe their cycle is every five days they're cycling through our food plot as an elk or a mule deer because their range is larger versus a whitetail that may come every day or maybe even every third day because I have several big bucks that they make a, a bigger loop and they're there right. every three days like clockwork, but they're in there to get their nutrition. So I can't help but think that the guy who says, well, crud, these, you know, pick a product, whatever you want to pick. I can go to the co-op and I can buy clover cheap. Yeah. A lot cheaper. Yeah. But what they're missing out is all the years of experience, all the testing, all the you're, you're providing a, a, a product. And we haven't even got into the stability, the reliability, the, the germination, all the stuff of this mm. of the actual from the coating to the seed that you have done. Right. You've done to all actually that. have seed in the bag. Right. To actually <laughs> have seed in the bag. Yeah. So you've done all that so that when they buy that. Yeah. In actuality, per pound, they're paying more, but what they're paying more for is a, a more palatable, a more attractive, uh, uh, something that's really going to They're going to have success with. Right. And right. their deer are going to actually right. benefit from right. it. Right, right. And that's, you know, uh, you know we, try to, we try to explain that and share that with people. Um, a lot of times, people that we're talking to, whether we're at a trade show or uh, depending on where we're at, you know, and engaging a customer, they're telling us a story of failure or minimal success right, and right. where they're struggling and why they think they're struggling, um, how they grew this great looking food plot, but the deer wanted nothing to do with it. And they spent all this time and money. And so my whole attitude about food plots is, is I want to set the customer up for immediate success. They shouldn't have to go through the year and a half or two years that I did struggling with food plots. Nobody has the time. Nobody can afford two years of failure at food plots. First of all, your wife will put you out on the doorstep like Fred Flintstone. And, you know, and at the end of the day, you need to have that immediate success to be able to bring the deer in to have, you know, if you're competing with a neighbor, you're competing with another food source in a farmer's field, you need to be able to draw those deer in. We have done the research and spent the time putting the right blends together at the when planted at the right time of the year can bring success not only in building in a healthier herd, but drawing those deer in at those crucial times of the season that are important so that the hunter has success. So you don't, uh, and I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit because I think this is something that we could get really deep on the science of it um i know for me every every year we've been working with you 
it's like drinking from a fire hose. You know, it, it's just so much. And I've been, I, I, I hope that, that I've learned enough because now I look at it and I go, well, you know, I think this, this product, mm-hmm. Deepwoods would work here. Um, and then, uh, you know, some of the new products I'm excited to try. But I know what my staples are because Carnage I've, se- I've, I've yeah. seen what's happened. Now, here I am. I'm a guy, maybe I'm in the Midwest. Heck, maybe I'm uh, uh, out West and I've got some property with elk and mule deer. I don't have the time. I don't have the time to plant this. You also offer a service where you can do a consultation, you can come out and you can literally turnkey, uh, uh, provide a turnkey service mm-hmm. that where you can step in and, and, and actually help them develop their food plot plans. Mm-hmm long-term plans and and actual utilization for that year you guys do that yeah yes we do talk we, us through a little bit what that so, what that looks like so we do everything from that consultation standpoint where whether that's setting up an appointment on phone and we're looking at aerial maps and um you know understanding what your what your scenario is your property we talk about some basics um, then the, the level two or what I call phase one property consultation on site is where we come out, we meet with you, we evaluate everything from the timber to the understory, native species versus evasives, entry access strategy, how are you getting in and out, where are your food sources now, or if you don't have food plots and you're thinking about putting them in, um, what water sources do you have, what, uh, what type of bedding, travel corridor, that you that your deer are using how are your neighbors and or crops around you affecting your hunt Um, usually customers have a goals and objectives list and then they have this you know frustration list that they that that mountain they can't get over or that thing they're not sure how to deal with Um, ironically about 90 percent of my customers have that neighbor that drives them crazy or sits on the property line or is always cutting their deer off or trying to benefit off of what they've done on their properties and that's a that's a probably one of the biggest things um, at the top of their list when we meet with them. But we go through that series of questions. We sit down, we look at their aerial maps or whatever their their uh, topo map, whatever it happens to be, and we look at that topography. We look at how are they entering and exiting the property, and we find a lot of um, problematic things going on with regard to the entry exit strategy um on a property people are walking in and blowing their deer out on a regular basis and then this has what you've mentioned to me so far has nothing to do with food plots yet no i'm not it has nothing to do with the food plot the food plot is a piece of it so we have a full uh, i offer and have a very extensive uh, understanding and knowledge of timber and how to manage that timber um people look at their piece of property as just their property where they hunt they don't think about it timber is a is a part of your investment portfolio that property is part of your investment portfolio you have a 401k and you have either you manage or have somebody else manage it your timber on your property depending on the, the situation and where we are in the in the u.s it can be a managed resource it's a liquidatable asset but when managed you can maximize the yield and return on that every five to to eight to 12 years somewhere in that range where it's creating a cash flow and it's regenerating the understory for your habitat so we're looking at a lot of different aspects um when we come to a particular piece of property and it's it can be overwhelming for people but i think it's eye-opening where 
they're like, oh, man, I never thought about that. Gosh, that makes perfect sense. But I would have never even thought to look at my property in this way or to look at how I'm, I walk the same trail. My dad, my grandpa, we've all walked the same trail. I said, yep. And what's the best deer you ever shot, you know? And why is it that nobody can seem to get over the hump, so to say, of shooting a 140 or 150 or whatever. That's the biggest deer. You might have them on trail camera. You know, they're 160, 170. Right. That makes total sense. Yep. And so, you know, and, and a lot of times I'm not looking at, at a, my customer is just saying, hey, I just want to have a better hunting experience. It's not even about shooting a 180-inch deer. Everybody, you know, dreams of that and wants to do that. But a lot of them are like, I'm just not seeing the same deer I used to see, and we're not attracting them. And I walk in, and I can see from one end of their, their 80 acres to the other because they have a park effect. They have no understory, and they don't understand that with less they have thick understory, they're not going to be able to hold deer. It's only going to be a transitional property and just opening their eyes to that. And so um, – there's a lot of different aspects. So that's, those are some of the things we offer for those who want timber management. Timber management can be a little bit of a scary thing for a property owner to think mm-hmm. that I'm going to let some stranger come in here and cut my trees down. Um, I know there's a lot of gypsies out there in the, in that industry. And, and, you know, um, it's tough to know who to trust because once you cut a tree, you can't stand it back up. And so am I getting paid right? What are they doing to my property? What's it going to look like? Is it going to be all rutted up and destroyed? And, and so we take, we take away that fear. We take away that risk. Um, we manage it from start mm. to finish uh, from a timber standpoint. So you're more of a consultant so in, 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 that regards, in that regard, almost a financial consultant because there yeah. is a financial aspect yeah. to that. And I take that serious. You know, when I, when I manage or work with a customer or um, work to manage their timber, manage their, their overall habitat plan of what we're going to implement, getting rid of evasives, um, autumn olive, Russian autumn olive is a nasty thing and it's all over the country, you know, managing, getting rid of that. So it doesn't choke out all the native species of food and it doesn't choke out all the young developing trees that, you know, timber asset that I'm talking about. Um, there's a lot of things that, that happen and I want to make sure that I'm helping my customer get the right resources, get trustworthy people to come in there to do that work. I can manage it. Uh, from start to finish, or if they want to be part of that, uh, they can be, you know, participating at any level that they want. So. Sanctuaries. Let's talk about sanctuaries. I just want to get your opinion because Adam is, as you know, uh, our resident expert when it comes to a lot of that stuff. Before we met, you know, um, I just didn't have any experience with it. And so one of the things Adam does a really good job of is regardless if, he, if he's managing a property out west here or a whitetail property, he's always allowing or setting up areas that are basically designated sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go in there. Mm-hmm. He doesn't shed hunt in there. Mm-hmm. He does, I mean, he just literally leaves that the, those animals alone in there and hunts the edges. And uh, w- w- g- tell me your ideas on that and the importance of that. So depending on the size of the property right sure. right so you know some properties support having a sanctuary um what we do in the food from a food plot standpoint is we create a destination plot whenever possible in the center of the property and then we establish buck and doe bedding areas close to that food source and that food source is generally two three four five acres of the center core of the property in the right food with the right cover, right. the right bedding. That becomes our sanctuary. 
And the reason why we try to establish that in the center of the property, and I'm gearing this more towards whitetails because that is my passion and that is my true, um, you know, study over the last 29 years is whitetails, is that they need to feel safe and they need to be within 50 to 75 yards whenever possible of their food in the late winter months because it's very stressful for them to get up to move to go find food and get food and they're burning their carrying capacity that they've been trying to build all right. spring and summer we want to preserve as much of that fat in their body or i call it the pork steak fat not the you know um preserve as much of that as possible so minimizing that move to and from the security of the shelter and that shelter is keeping them out of the direct wind from the cold frigid weather um to keeping them you know keeping them safe and if predators are approaching being able to give them lots of entry and exit points so they can escape that but keeping them close to that food that's how i create normally am creating sanctuaries now on certain properties they have big swamps they have high land within surrounded by water We'll go in in the winter months and we'll manipulate those areas. I'm, you know, I'm not a huge hinge cutting guy. Hinge cutting seems to be like in the whitetail world, everybody wants to hinge cut trees. And, and uh, it's a very short-lived, fast return. Uh, not something I'm a huge supporter of because every tree dies within a, uh, within a year and a half to two years. It's dead, if not faster. So what we do is so we... Hinge, see, because I've, I've bought into that uh, mystique that the hinge cutting will allow that tree to still survive. And all you're basically doing is you're creating cover for a short period. And allowing sunlight to get to the forest right. floor to reinvigorate those those younger trees right. that were being snubbed out by the canopy of your mature timber. And my whole focus is, is that's part of your investment portfolio. If I'm going to go in there and girdle trees and I'm going to hinge cut trees, I'm going to sell that tree and get you paid for it. And then that is going to open up the sunlight, but we're going to manage because we need age structure in our timber. We need everything from the size of our pinky to two, three, four, five, six, you know, 24 inch trees. You don't cut every 24 inch tree out of your woods because they produce math, hard mass. And they, they also, you need to have that age structure because as soon as you open your canopy too much, guess what happens to all your trees? They get all the sucker branches popping out. Now you're stripping the veneer and the grade high grade out of your timber, which is bringing the dollars and it's opening up too much canopy. Um, I've helped many customers that said, I don't care about the trees. I don't care what they're worth. Just cut them down because I want thicker property. Well, I've be honest with you. I never met a person who didn't care about the money that's coming on, off their property because they certainly complain every time they got to write a check for taxes. Right. So what we do is we help them to understand there's some real significant money here on your property. And this is how we can manage that to have that age structure. And every eight to maybe 12 years, you're going to be able to get that cycle of cash flow, but improving your habitat and continually get that influx of wildlife. You know, in this case, they're targeting mostly, you know, whitetails or, or mule deer or elk. We're trying to bring those animals into their particular piece of property. Mm -hmm. um, you know, poplar and aspen trees are a huge draw for your elk. And so every time you cut one of those, you get 15 to 20 whips. For every tree you take, mature tree you take out, you get 15 to 20 whips. That's the normal, you know, um, percentage. And that's a lot of available food. Most animals eat from the forest floor to about seven foot high. And so if you, you have to keep that, that forest floor cycling and producing all different types of, of woody browse and, and soft browse throughout the season to help your animals 
be as healthy as possible. Those were the foods that they were designed to eat. And then supplementing or coming alongside those natural food sources. We never try to replace them, but to build upon the proteins and the carbohydrates mm. at critical times right. of the year. Right. Yeah. It's so much more than what I signed on for, yeah. but it's something that it's, it's to me it's fascinating because I've always explained to people that that whitetail specifically you have a property that's X amount of acres most of the time you can only hunt that it's not like out west where there's you got big big expanses of public land mm-hmm. um, and you're trying to create that uh, experience whether it be hunting whatever um, but there's so much more to that and it's year long and it's a chess match that's, that doesn't just start, uh, you know, in October, into October when you're anxiously awaiting the rut, it starts, as you said, spring, mm-hmm. you know, on into summer, then your fall food plots and, uh, it's exciting. Well, especially when you establish something mm-hmm. and uh, I use Missouri as a good example. We have a clover plot that's on the the, the food line uh, plot that we, we call um, it. The clover there, the stand, we've established a stand that is returning. And a lot of times what we're doing on some of that is just overseeding because it's got such a good clover stand. Now, we might come back in there and plant the Border Patrol to create that enclosure, to create that safety, as you've talked about, the ability for us to get in and out of the stand, mm-hmm. all that stuff. But the base is there. And and uh, and some of that stuff is it doesn't return. Mm-hmm. Some of it you have to plant every year. Yeah. But those are the critical groceries. Right. That's the bolstering the groceries you need for fall and winter. Right. You need to maximize the tonnage production of available food in carbohydrates, some proteins, and the cereal grains for that stimulation of that digestive system. And that's why I do an eight, most of the time I'm doing 80-20, 20% protein, 80% carbs, right. and, and right. you know, in a cereal grain and or um, brassica type varieties, different things that we're putting together in our blends and or blending our blends together, depending on what the customer's needs are and what their available areas are to plant or areas that we have to create by doing a timber cut and targeting an area stumping it out and getting it prepped building the soil and and then getting those destination plots for instance well this is exciting uh but i believe we are going to continue because we still haven't even gotten to colorado so why don't we make this a two-parter garrett is there anything you want to throw in here i just can't help but notice when you first started talking about the evolution that you went through and when you first started doing food plots it was whatever little chunk of ground that was flat that you could plant clover. Mm -hmm. That was what your food plot regiment was to now you've got a year round program. Right. And you, and we, we were kidding about this earlier, but you wear so many hats in what you do now, where you're a hunter, you're a wildlife biologist, you're an, an ecologist, you're a farmer, you're a mechanic, you're an engineer, your business i mean it, that's the evolution that i hear and that's yeah. just fascinating to to see how that has evolved over 25 29 years, years 29 years yeah it's crazy yeah. ever since i got out of high school and was talked into this crazy thing of yeah. whitetail food so plots. what do your friends think of you now 
well, they definitely like to use my products, yeah. you know. And, and uh, have you got have you got them trained how to do their own now though? <laughs> yes, you kind of got yes. them lined out, right? Yeah, you they own their own tractors, their right, own toys. Yeah. Yep, yep. They've got uh, they they have evolved too, at least to having those things. I'm no longer using their quad and something we. Uh, uh, got from the farmer and welded up and fixed up to make it well, work. Uh, that, but I did that, return to that this week. This that weekend leads into what we're doing. <laughs> but you know what? We're going to end right now. We're going to invite you guys to come back. And um, this was. I mean, maybe we hope we didn't lose you on some of the science. But to me, it's fascinating because a lot of it can transfer not only to what we're doing in Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, stuff like that, but it transfers into Colorado. It transfers Definitely. into these little properties or bigger properties. And um, so anyway, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this out. We'll jump right back into part two. So um, be, uh, be looking for it, people. And as always, we want to thank you for listening uh, and encourage you to get out there, find what inspires you, find what in the wild inspires you and embrace it. God bless and we'll see you down the trail.